Hey everyone, we are back and we're recording our second episode on what we're calling the left, in quotes, um, progressivism or, or liberalism, basically uh, left of center ideals. And we're talking through how those ideals are out of step, uh, we believe, with the way of Jesus and what Christians should be pursuing in terms of the common good in the world. And um, before we get into it, I want to talk just for a minute about why we why we have these conversations. Why do we do this podcast uh, we've said it many times before, we don't want to be a church that never talks about what's going on in the world. We don't want to be a church that if someone comes into church on Sunday mornings, they're like, man, do, they, do these people live in a cave, right? They don't they don't know what's going on in the world at all. But at the same time, we don't want Sunday mornings to be just a current events update every week where what, whatever we're doing is always just subject to whatever is going on in the world. And there's an event and now we're changing the playbook every Sunday so we use these conversations as a way to go a little deeper on what's going on in the world without it always coming into our Sunday morning worship. And so that's why we have these conversations. That's why we do these on the podcast and the meeting that we do. I also want to say really quickly, we are talking about the left and disagreements that we have with the left, but we were careful in our first episode and we want to reiterate it here that we don't see these quote unquote outside forces as a primary threat to the church, the evangelical church, the church that we're a part of. We think that most of the damage done to churches like ours is done from the inside. It's done from us rather than them, so to speak. And so we don't necessarily see these things as massive threats to the American church in that sense, but they are they are things that we look at and we say, this is not uh, in line with what we believe, and we want to be clear about that and, and have that conversation. So with Joe Biden being uh, elected president back in, in this previous election cycle, some of these more left-leaning political ideologies have been back front and center in the news uh, with a number of Biden's executive orders that he signed and with just a number of things that they're talking about that he and his administration are talking about doing. So we thought it'd be a good time to discuss some of these. And again, to reiterate why we're doing these podcasts on here and on these topics, why we're talking about them at all. We know that these are very important topics for you, for your life. These are things that you're paying attention to. So our goal with these is to just help us try to think biblically about uh, what we're seeing and what we're experiencing and encountering in the culture so that we can have uh, informed biblical conversations with friends, coworkers, neighbors, etc., and witness for Jesus in those contexts as best we can. So in a lot of these things... Um, there's room for there's room for disagreement with Christians. We hope to we hope to just uh, provoke some good conversation and biblical biblical discussions about this stuff. So uh, the first one that we want to talk about is abortion and how we think that abortion is out of step with Christian Christian values. Um, so in when uh, Biden's administration came into office, they signed an executive order regard in regards to the Mexico City policy, which um, allocates federal funding to abortion and abortion-providing um, organizations. So, um, yeah, we think we think abortion in general, there's a ton to be said about this, about why we think it is unethical and should be illegal in the United States. And I shouldn't speak for you guys, but uh, for me, that's, that's uh, what I think. And there's lots of reasons why I think that is, and we can get into that and we could have that conversation if you'd like to. Um, but at the outset, let's just, we're just going to make that assumption and... Um, and dive into it from there. It's very common to hear something along the lines of nobody likes abortion, but right, mm-hmm. and um, and some of those buts are pretty are pretty compelling. You know, things like our government is largely run by men still, and it's telling women what they can do with their bodies. 
that's compelling to some people. If you're kind of left a left-leaning Christian, it's very common in the church to talk about, here's the problems that, that overturning abortion does not fix, and there are a lot of them. We think there would still be abortions if it was overturned. We think that um, there would just be illegal abortions. We think that the church doesn't do a great job of preventing abortions in certain ways um, by failing to care for, for moms in crisis, et cetera. There's a lot of good points there, and we agree with a lot of that. At the end of the day, I think some of that is really just a distraction from the core question, which is, ethically speaking, if it's a human life, then we should not take into our own power um, the decision to end that human life. And that just comes back to our Christian belief in human lives and that human lives have an inherent dignity and value because men and women are made in the image of God. And so we believe that. And so, yes, it creates challenges, and our take is pretty simple. I would rather live in a country that deals with the challenges of not aborting babies. Let's solve those problems. Let's put, you know, let's put our American ingenuity towards that problem rather than what we see as a very kind of extremely inhumane solution. I've read a number of arguments uh, for abortion, and then John kind of outlined a couple of the most common ones. Um, there's, you know, Peter Singer's arguments, there's Judith Jarvis, Jarvis Thompson's arguments, and these are like the best, most compelling philosophical arguments. And basically all of them, I think, come up pretty short um, because of what you just said. So I think the question with abortion that we have to keep coming back to is, again, is this a human person? And once we have defined if this is a human person in the womb and when it becomes a human person at conception, I believe, then from there, it, the, the decisions usually become clearer. And a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the other situations, though sad, there will be further complications, of course, and things that come up if it is illegal. Um, but at the end of the day, we we have to make an ethical decision on what is right. Is it right to terminate another life? No. In the ethical decision making process, we try to muddy the water so much. With this. So from a policymaking position, especially when you compare it to other circumstances, like is it right to terminate a six-month-old baby who is completely dependent upon his mother for survival, right? In the same context, like there's, when we begin to compare it to other scenarios, like in location, just being in the womb versus outside of the womb, does that define personhood? What defines personhood? Is it, is it age, uh, no. So we need just a clear definition of personhood, and the only clear case for personhood is at conception, when we have a unique, new, genetic person. I think it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of people in the last stages of their life as well. You mentioned in church on Sunday a little bit about physician-assisted suicide and just the lack of dignity that we tend to give to people who are in those late stages of their life. And I think, again, you can make compelling cases. I've, I've watched, I don't know how many TV episodes of some terrible medical drama <laughs> where they're asking these questions of like, this quality of life, is it not kinder to this person to end this life, right? And just to put, you know, quote unquote, put them out of their misery, right? And I think for us, that question is a little bit compelling because you can, you can get into a place where it almost feels compassionate. But it's really, at the end of the day, it's, it's the wrong question. For us, the, the right question is, should we as human beings be making those sorts of decisions? I think an area where, if you get into more of the conservative space, that this is good to think about is things like the death penalty, things like when should a Christian use violence to defend themselves, things like that. There's, there's interesting places that those conversations can go. There's a lot of 
um, extreme and rare scenarios that you can that you can talk about. But I think when we talk about the majority of abortions, we talk about the majority of these what we would consider human rights violations. Um, the vast majority of them are, are more people making a decision around what um, what they think is best for them. And I understand how how people get there, how they justify it. I totally get it. At the end of the day, we think if that's a human life, that that should be taken into account. Yeah, when we talk about policymaking, especially, we tend to go to the rare cases, things like rape and incest, or it seems to me a lot of the arguments on the left for keeping abortion legal tend to amplify the cases of rape and incest or cases where there is a, it's a threat to the life of the mother and say, oh, if we make abortion illegal, then then this case, and they'll hold up one case, is, wouldn't have had this outcome. Um, and then on the right, they want to make every every abortion about simply preference. Um, and both are not true, right? Both both are just intentionally trying to focus on one side of the argument in order to make their case, right? The, the reality is it, is it is messy, but we do have to just boil it down to the basic ethical question of is it right to take a life? And in that case, I think legally, we have to be careful not to make laws that are are reflective of a small minority of cases. We can make laws that are reflective of the majority, and then we do this all the time with law, right, to to make exceptions for those instances where, for example, the life of the mother is threatened as well. So there's, there's plenty of room within the law for those conversations. You brought up the idea that, that life begins at conception. I think there's a little bit of, of a conversation that can be had there. Is it that moment, or is it, you know... Um, is it week four or something like that? Um, and I'm not even disagreeing. I, that's not my point. But when we look at the policies that are pushed by progressives, that is completely taken out of the equation. They're not saying we don't believe it's a life yet until week six. You know, we're getting up past 20 weeks in a lot of cases. This is clearly a human being at this point, And we still think that what's more important than that is for a woman to be able to choose what she wants and what's best for her body. Right. And so that's an argument that people will go to sometimes. It's like, well, how can you say it begins at conception? And honestly, at the end of the day, that's it's sort of irrelevant to what people on the left in, in government are pursuing mm-hmm. right now. It's it's well beyond. In many cases, it's at a point where, you know, the fetus would be viable outside mm-hmm. the womb. That's a kid who could survive, um, you know, if, if born that day and they still are advocating, you know, to be able to, to take that baby's life. So I mentioned earlier Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument about this where, she begins her argument, and she's a philosopher. She's brilliant. Um, she begins her argument by basically admitting that the life begins at conception. And then her argument is why she still thinks that abortion should be legalized. And like for me, and I think from a Christian worldview, we have to rewind and say, whoa, 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 wait. Like You say that that is a human person. That's like the end of the argument, that we then are never justified in actively taking that human person's life, except in the case of potentially the loss of life of the mother. Um, and that is, there's plenty of room, like I said, for writing that into the law. So that's the conversation that we need to have and go back to is like, what, what is a human person? We value human life. And so we, we want to reflect that as a society. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about is how I think I think in the church, especially uh, evangelical Christians, have put a ton of have put a ton of the emphasis on this conversation. And for our conversation today, we're talking about this from the lens of politics, right? But we have put too much. We've put a ton of emphasis on the political 
aspect of this conversation and less on just the cultural persuasion aspect of this conversation because the statistics have shown that the number of abortions has been decreasing significantly regardless of political movement on the issue. I I believe for the last, is it 50 years? Mm -hmm. uh, Abortions have been pretty steadily declining even through, for example, the Obama administration, which was a very pro-choice administration um, through uh, pro-choice, through pro-life, presidencies and administrations, the, the number of abortions throughout our society has been steadily decreasing. And, and for me, like, that's the win, right, is fewer abortions uh, taking place in our society. So however we get to that outcome, even if it isn't from the Roe v. Wade being overturned, however we get to that outcome of, of fewer lives being taken, that's the win. Right. And this is an episode about the left, but in fairness, Republicans don't really prioritize changing abortion legislation either. We already talked about the Mexico City policy and how Republican presidents tend to reinstate that policy all the way back to Reagan, both the Bushes, I believe, uh, and President Trump. But in terms of the legality of abortion, it just simply isn't a priority. And we basically know that because they've had the controls and the ability to enact new legislation at different points in the W. Bush administration and the Trump administration and six of the nine Supreme Court justices who have the power to overturn Roe v. Wade were appointed by Republicans, the pro-life Republican Party, right? And so if that's the case, why is Roe v. Wade still there? It's also worth pointing out that even if Roe v. Wade was overturned, that wouldn't make abortion illegal. It would just make it a state-by-state issue. But for conservative Christians who care about the sanctity of life, the dignity of human beings as image bearers of God, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves, and it's a tough question to wrestle with, is simply this. Do Republicans actually want to change these laws, or do they just want to make sure we vote for them? And sadly, I find myself in the camp of believing in the latter more than the former. You might call that cynical, but from my perspective, it doesn't help us at all to pretend that that's not what's happening. But again, that is not by any means to let Democrats or progressive politicians off the hook. Um, We believe that their take on abortion is, um, is reprehensible. Let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about um, the Equality Act, which is a bill. That I think it's passed the House at this point, right? And it's it's before the Senate. And it's a bill that prohibits discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, gender identity in areas including public accommodations, facilities, education, federal funding, employment, housing, credit, and the jury system. Specifically, the, the bill defines and includes sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity among the prohibited categories of discrimination or segregation. The bill expands the definition of public accommodations to include places or establishments that provide exhibitions, recreation, exercise, amusement, gatherings, or displays, goods, services, or programs, and transportation services. The bill allows the Department of Justice to intervene in equal protection actions in federal court on account of sexual orientation or gender identity. The bill prohibits an an individual from being denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, locker room, and a dressing room. That is in in accordance with the individual's gender identity. So the glaring thing here that that has a lot of Christians concerned is that this could very easily be interpreted to put a lot of restrictions on religious freedoms in terms of affirming a traditional sexual ethic. And so that's where the, that's where the concern around this comes from for Christians. 
you can see how if there isn't a specific allowance for religious beliefs, how this could be used to enforce a lot of things as, as it relates to, you know, Christian churches, Christian schools, Christian universities, etc. So a few people from the church have asked me about this. And, um, and yeah, from my understanding of it, again, it is, it is concerning uh, where it could go in terms of not paying attention or not giving enough viability to Christian institutions and Christian beliefs and practices or any religious beliefs and practices. It's not just Christians that would be affected by this. It's Jews and Muslims as well, for sure. It certainly doesn't uh, spell out religious protections for those, and that is that is concerning in a lot of ways. These things will likely be affecting things like Christian hospitals, like Catholic hospitals first, organizations like uh, Christian institutions of higher education. Um, they're probably going to be the front lines of this. If if there is if, when the, if this legislation passes, most likely lawsuits will be brought up there first, and then brought eventually to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will decide. Um, the encouraging note in this is the Supreme Court has consistently supported religious liberties in cases like this that have come to the Supreme Court over the last you know five years or so. The Supreme Court has been pretty consistent in, in maintaining religious liberties for um, cases such as this. For example, the case of the, the guy who owned the bake, bake shop and... His case went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sided in his favor. I would also say there's a lot of stuff in here that Christians shouldn't be upset about. We want to be able to preach what we believe is true. We want to be able to tell people what we believe is true and have the freedom to do that. So short of that, I don't think there's anything in here that we have to be super upset about. Um, but again, as currently constituted, you can see in the language that I'm reading from congress.gov there, you can see that there is no protection for religious institutions built into this. And I think people, regardless of gender identity, regardless of sexual orientation, they need to be afforded certain rights and protections. I don't really care who's in the bathroom with me. <laughs> you know, if I decided to, to transition to a different gender, I don't think it should affect my credit score. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of stuff to think about in terms of discrimination besides just what happens within our church walls, you know. But I don't want the government coming to our church and telling us what we can and can't say mm -hmm. in regards to what we believe about sex and God's design for sex and for marriage. And so that's really our concern. Mm -hmm. And until it gets closer to that, this isn't something that we're going to um, lose a lot of sleep over. I think it's fair to say. Amen to what you said. And I think there's about rights for, uh, for example, transgender individuals in our country. I think it's important for us to separate those two out. Like you said, that the, government allows for and what the government says that we as the church can and cannot say. Those are important distinctions. Um, the only other thing I would say on this is there's, there's a good bit of fear mongering going on oh, yeah. around this, around this one, especially within the church. So all, all I'd say is just be aware of some of those things. The last thing we want to talk about is, is sort of a critique of, of the way that the left tries to position themselves in terms of certain policies around um, it's foreign policy to a degree, what, you know, be it um, military engagement, but it's also things like immigration, refugees, some of, those, some of those areas where the differences between the right and the left at times are really more about political posturing than they are about tangible differences in policy. And there are some differences, but we wanted to talk about a few instances where we really think on the left, they do make an attempt to differentiate. And I think in some cases, some established media types help them do that. But in reality, there's not much of a difference there. And we wanted to talk about a few examples of that. 
Yeah, I think the most obvious one right now is the one on immigration. Years ago, the Trump administration uh, had a policy where they were separating families at the border. So when a family came across, they were separating kids from their parents. They had various reasons for doing that. And and it was widely decried in the media as a as wrong and not good. And I think we talked about that and we made a statement that that was not ethical. Now, the Biden administration has a policy where they're only accepting minors and they're not accepting adults at the at the border. And it's essentially had the same effect. And it seems as if both of them were creating these policies as a deterrent to coming across the border. And we can argue the ethics of each individual one and whether they're good or bad and all of that, but they've had the same effect. And children are coming across the border without their caretaker. And essentially the same thing is happening where we have too many kids that they don't know what to do with, they don't have space for. So essentially the kids in cages thing is still happening now under the Ed Biden administration, but they're just talking about it differently, right? Yeah, and, and there's... Uh, other examples of that, I mean, I think during the Obama administration, President Obama actually caught a lot of heat from progressives over time because in their mind, he didn't he didn't keep a lot of his promises on foreign policy around things like closing Guantanamo Bay, you know, involvement in conflict in the Middle East, some of those different things. Personally, I'm a little bit cautious to comment on those things because I think there are just things that you learn when you're given the clearance to be in the situation right. room, so to speak. Right that the rest of us don't have. So I do have some caution there. But I think our point is is more along the lines of the fact that there's a lot of positioning, there's a lot of p- political posturing around those things. We've talked about Christian nationalism, and I think right now it, the, the left really wants to paint conservatives as like the sort of the white nationalism party, right? And there's no, there are some instances um, with Republicans where they've dipped their toe into those waters. But there are also some areas where, again, for, for Democrats and the policies they're putting forward, it's not that different. Another example would be around refugees. You know, uh, President Trump brought the refugee cap to a historic low level and caught a lot of heat from the left, from liberal media sources. It also caught a lot of heat from evangelicals, um, evangelical uh, organizations like World Relief, who are talking about how they want uh, our country to be a place that cares for people. We're talking about refugees here, vetted refugees who go through a very difficult process of being awarded refugee status that they actually are coming out of a war-torn situation or something similar. And uh, the Biden administration, their initial plan was to maintain the cap at the same level that that uh, the Trump administration had set. And it wasn't until they got pretty severe backlash and, and, and some pushback from, again, evangelicals, that they raised that cap. But you would think if the outrage that had happened when President Trump set that level, when the administration set that level, you would think if that outrage that ensued was legitimate outrage and not just political posturing, then that would have been one of the first things the, the Biden administration changed. But they seemed content to leave it there. So similar to immigration, similar to some of the foreign policy stuff under the Obama administration, there is a lot more political posturing that goes into painting the parties as different when it comes to some of these things than is actual reality. Another issue that's come up recently is the vaccine distribution. One, as COVID is ravaging India, lately the Biden administration has decided to send a bunch of vaccine, which hasn't been cleared for emergency use here in America. Uh, We've sent that over to India. That came after a lot of pressure from the left of saying, you know, we've got all this vaccine. We need to help them. We need to do something. And again, back to the point of political posturing, it seems like that would be a pretty obvious thing to do. Since we have a surplus, it's not secret knowledge that we are quickly coming to a place where we have more vaccine than demand for the vaccine in our country. And we've seen this coming for a long time. If it was more of a principled thing, 
on the left, it would have been an obvious decision to ship a ton of the vaccine over to India long before the pressure came in from the left. Initially, there was there were comments from within the Biden administration about taking care of our own first. There was a lot of language, honestly, and just action that if it had happened under the Trump administration, it would have been a media bloodbath, right? It would, it would, there would have been a lot of like blood on your hands, rhetoric surrounding it. And there has been none of that with something that I think was handled very similarly under the Biden administration to how it probably would have went under the Trump administration by, you know, just by, by what we know right now. If you don't think we should be sending the, the, that vaccine, then that's not even really our point. Our point is, again, when it comes to some of these things revolving around how we handle treatment of, of people in other nations, the parties aren't always as different as they would like us to believe. For us as Christians, when we look at all of these issues, things like abortion, we talked about the Equality Act, we talked about foreign policy, immigration, refugees. The big idea that we're driving at is to not align ourselves and like, commit to be an allegiance to one party or another uh, because our allegiance is already committed to Christ. So when we commit to Christ, when we commit to scripture, then we can look at all of these different issues and situations like abortion, like immigration and refugees through the lens of scripture. And we may not line up with one party specifically or another. Um, and I think we can, we should be criticizing both parties on these things. That is the role of Christians within our society is to point to scripture and say, this is what we think is good and true and right and ethical. And so this is what we should be adhering to according to scripture, instead of just aligning with one political party and taking everything that they have to say on that issue as gospel, instead holding that up to the light of the gospel. What, what we want to say and demonstrate more clearly, I think, is that if we are following Jesus and that is our primary identity, is we're following Jesus. We should not feel at home in either party. We live in a, in a society where political identity is really strong. And what, we're, what we've been saying and will continue to say is that is never going to perfectly capture the way of Jesus. It's not some sort of like soft, why can't we all get along? Mm -hmm. Jesus wasn't a Democrat or a Republican. It's not that. There's considerable evil in both of these ideologies, we believe. There's considerable departure from the will of God and the way of Jesus in both of these parties. And so we're not saying don't vote for one or the other. We understand people feel like they need to be involved in that process. Bottom line, the way of Jesus doesn't align with either one. And in honest, honestly, neither one comes particularly close. I'd agree. Thank you guys for listening. We want your feedback. Again, we're, th these are open-handed discussions. We're trying to be gracious in how we deliver them. Um, and if you have feedback for us, if you have concerns or things you want to voice with us, um, you know how to find us and we'd be happy to talk with you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon.